Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Scott Newstock, professor of English and founding director of the Pierce Shakespeare Endowment at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. He's the author of How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. It might sound like that book from a couple of decades back, which encouraged readers to become like Leonardo da Vinci. And I have to admit that I never really did use uh, my left hand for writing as I was supposed to, to activate the ambidextrous sides of my brain or whatever it was. But it's really something, uh, this book is really something other than a self-help book. It is a series of meditations on certain features of education, many of which have been lost, and how those features might be carefully rediscovered and appropriated in a very different age. Scott Newstock, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. I'm glad to be here. So um, let's begin with a little historical interlude, uh, since we'll, mm -hmm. this is historically thinking. Um, mm -hmm. So what was a grammar school in Shakespeare's time actually like? Uh, I have to admit that I had two things when I got into this book, and it, and it might have been because I, I'm not sure all the reviewers have completely figured out what you're up to. Um, I thought there's going to be a lot on Shakespeare's grammar school. Uh, I thought this was like, oh, this is interesting because, of course, the the conspiracy theorists about Shakespeare are always saying, well, how could anyone in the Stratford Grammar School be so smart? Mm -hmm. How could they have learned mm -hmm. so much? They must have gone to Oxford or Cambridge, right? That's very common for the Baconians and all the rest of them. Um, mm -hmm. Then I thought it was, as I said, a sort of self-help book and sort of how to be like Shakespeare. But let's go back to like the grounding principle. What was Shakespeare's school life like? As best as we can know, what were grammar schools like at his time? Well, they were they were training grounds for rhetorical fluency. And I think if you Walter Ong has a great line saying that really learning Latin was something like a Renaissance puberty rite. That was <laughs> that that is exactly what was going on in that institution from around age seven to around age fourteen or so. So it wasn't it wasn't our full sense of the seven seven liberal arts. It really was primarily focused on uh, language facility through exercises in rhetoric and grammar and some logic. But so far as I've seen, that's not been the primary focus. It's really been about, about language facility, learning Latin, translating Latin back and forth into English and back into Latin again. And that was a, there was a graded graduated curriculum the, that was developed early in the 16th century really by Erasmus and then carried over by John Collett, the Dean of St. Paul's and instituted by William Lilly as he created textbooks for, for grammar and uh, Latin and Greek exercises. And then it was those, those institutions really started to flourish and expand across Tudor England in the middle of the 16th century in an enormous expansion in access to school, to schooling limited to boys, as we know, unless you were a girl and you could afford a private household tutor. But in terms of these public grammar schools, uh, they were subsidized by the state or by endowments or by donors. So usually poor children could have their tuition waived and fees waived. 
so it was it was part of a larger ex- expansion of access to education throughout the 16th century and uh and uh, a fairly consistent pattern of the way that the curriculum was implemented across England and not dissimilar to similar uh, sorry not dissimilar to curricular practices across Europe as well so you're saying that Shakespeare got to be very good at English by being very good at Latin. Well, yeah, I mean, he was incredibly is, good at Latin. Which, which is, might sound strange to some listeners. Yeah, it does sound counterintuitive, though. I think if you if you if you have any facility in a second language of, of any sort, even even stumbling facility with the second language, you know how it does bring into greater clarity things that you took for granted in your firstborn your your native language or the language that you grew up speaking in your household so that's a that's a truism that that they i think these uh teachers and educational theorists in the 16th century elevated to a, a principle which is that that wasn't the goal of the of the education the goal was not fluency in english but the a fascinating byproduct inadvertently was a, a enormous rhetorical flexibility and ingenuity in english and one of the practices that reinforce that most effectively was the process of double translation where you would take a Latin model, usually Cicero uh, would be a good model, translate it into English, and then take away the Latin model and force yourself to translate the English back into Latin and then compare your double translated Latin with the original Latin model. It's the same thing that Benjamin Franklin did in the 18th century when he was trying to perfect his writing. He did it in English to English translation. He was looking at uh, uh, he was looking at the Spectator and looking at at Addison as a model for how to write well in English. But he did the same thing where he would look at a model, imitate it, take the model away, and then try to figure out if he did how well he did in emulating that. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful byproduct. It was not the goal of that education was not to train people to write well in English. It was to train them to write well in Latin, so they could serve in the church or they could serve as clerks in the state. But it turns out to be weirdly good good training for being a dramatist and being a poet in English. It's I, I it would seem to me it, it is the, the magnificent magnificent practice for being a poet. Um, uh, just a few weeks ago, before we recorded this podcast, I recorded one with Paul Cartledge, the uh, classical historian, did mm-hmm. a podcast about the city of Thebes. And before we began, we were just chatting about you know uh, things, well, based about Oxford. And I was, uh, he was saying, um, you know, very modestly how people of his generation had, he had started Greek when he was about ten at, at school. And and I was curious. I saw. I was asking him how were how were, how are mods? How are the first exams that you, you take as an undergraduate at uh, Oxford? They must have mm-hmm. been so easy. I mean, it's very different now for for um, students in uh, uh, class in what they call grades um, when they take mm-hmm. mods. He said, "Oh no, we had to do we had to do exactly that. We had we took they would give us a poem in Latin and then we would translate it to English or in English Latin, and they would do it back and forth during during exams." Um, and you know Samuel Johnson. This is the same practice that, that Shakespeare was doing, but Samuel Johnson became famous. I think is still an Oxford undergraduate when he took a poem by Dryden or or, or Pope and translated it and made a Latin version of it to great acclaim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is it's fascinating how long that that persisted, and I, I think it has something to do with certainly English classicists' ability to write wells, uh, in, indeed. 
you know, it, I mean, and people still do it. It's not programmatically implemented in the same way, but it, it happens in people's lifetimes that they do it kind of inadvertently. There's a great example of James Baldwin describing how he really came to a much more powerful and intimate relationship to the English language by living in France and by speaking and thinking in French, which which clarified for him his his default first language. It's I think I think we all have versions of that. Anybody who has stumbled through a second language knows how how it actually forces you to think harder about how you express yourself than your than the default way that yeah. you might have thought you were doing it. Yeah. Well, let's um, let's move on to how did you conceive this book? Um, you obviously this well, it, it's a quite a ramble um, through <laughs> lots of different things, as I said to you earlier. And um, there are one of the features of it is there are lots and lots of quotations, and that is not mm -hmm. an accident. Uh, Princeton or you had the brilliant idea to put these in italics. Um, and they're kind of the point of this is that it's almost a commonplace book of quotations, but all fitted together into an argument, uh, into short, punchy arguments, 14 of them about different topics. So how did you conceive of the book and how did you conceive of the structure? The, the, I did, I did assemble it as something like a commonplace book. It emerged, it, it really emerged out of my teaching practices and things that I'd shared with my students over the years and passages that I had gathered in in a commonplace fashion in the in the same pattern that a humanist educator would recommend that a student uh, save and transcribe favorite passages or phrases or words for later recollection and stimulation and inspiration so the commonplace tradition is is really an inspiration for the way i assembled the book the, the book emerged out of my teaching practice and the kinds of exercises that i've done in the classroom and i really i really wanted to assemble things that I loved from writers that I love across multiple eras and nations and genres. Eventually I felt like the, the section started to consolidate into these clusters and I, I wanted them to be essayistic in the same way that uh, Montaigne or, or Bacon will kind of take an idea and toy with it for a short space. So they're, they're meant to be punchy. They're meant to be brief meditations on these topics and their the goal is to expose the reader to a wide range of I, I hope insightful gleanings not just from Shakespeare's era but from writers before him and writers after him and some allusions to contemporary cognitive science and pedagogical debates about education in our world today so it is a it is something of a hodgepodge it is it is overstuffed with quotations I think that takes a, a little getting used to at first for the reader and some Readers have not been that pleased with it, but I think others have enjoyed that it is a kind of a implicit syllabus of, of further reading and further places you can go with this. And I do I do want to give credit to the book designer at Princeton, who whose idea it was to place those quotations in italics rather than in in quotation marks. I we were trying we were recognizing the fact that it is overstuffed with quotations, it is thick with them, and I felt I was worried that it would be too disruptive for the reader to have quotation marks littered across the page. And it was her idea to place those passages in italics so that they would be woven a little more intimately into my own voice and less, less disruptively uh, uh, breaking it was your, a, your concentration. It, yeah, it's a brilliant choice. And the book, de book design at Princeton is really turning into a, a wonderful renaissance of, of, of art. I've got, you know, 
this is a podcast, so you can't see it, but it's really yeah. a nicely put together book. Uh, it is a nicely and, put together uh, book, and, and, it's, and she was absolutely right. Oh, she's totally right, and she herself is is trained as a medievalist, so she knew that this was a a, a long standing practice. It, I mean, if you look at examples of there, there are early modernist writers who do exactly this that they kind of lean into those quotations in italics. I had it. I had at one point toyed with the idea of doing a kind of David Shields thing of the reality hunger manifesto where you don't actually acknowledge the quotations until you get to the very end of the book. But that's, that seems like a stunt and it seemed too coy and it wasn't in the spirit of acknowledging the yeah. many voices that contributed to the book. But yes, it's a, it is a marvelously designed book. There are, I was stunned by the things that she was able to do as she was assembling it. And it's a very booky book. I mean, again, you can't see this on the podcast, but it, the, there's a lot of playfulness is. on the page that sh that's, that's to her credit and and very carefully crafted so that way it's visually appealing and there's there's a ton of subtle things that she did which i i love and i i really appreciate that work and it, it reminds me of the old roger yeah. roger stoddard uh book history insight which is authors don't actually make books you know it's a collaborative process with a lot of people and she's one <laughs> of many people i i'm indebted to no, I mean, it, you realize uh, from the very beginning when you see the picture of Archimedes' Ostromachion puzzle arranged by Ruth Neustock. Um, <laughs> uh, it's of Shakespeare. And then that turns out to be Archimedes' Ostromachion is, is important, actually. It's, it comes right at the end of the prologue. So, I mean, there's that playfulness throughout it. There are also footnotes, not endnotes. Foot, endnotes would have been infinitely frustrating in a book with so many quotations, yes. which are so apposite and, and necessary for yes. the structure. So it's really so cool. Um, but they're so as you know, they're uh, a pain to arrange on the page. So, again, it's all credit to the designers and the, and the copy editors and the editors that worked, yes. worked with me. And it was a very finicky, finicky text that they, they were very patient with. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the uh, the the chapters. The the we'll, we'll address about seven out of fourteen. Um, oh, I would say also people who don't like the quotations. If they don't like the quotations, they don't understand what the book is about. Uh, <laughs> it's really interesting because uh, it took I was it took they took me aback as well at first, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. visually. What's going on here? Then I was oh, I, now I see that this is actually the 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 facts of the quotations is in some way inherent to the overall theme of the book. So there's that. Um, you get all Aristotelian right at the beginning, and uh, we'll skip over uh, thinking because who needs to talk about that? We just spent <laughs> you know an hour and a half talking about that with Zena Hits. Um, yeah. So this well, everything we're talking about here is about thinking. But let's talk about of ends. As I say, um, you're very Aristotelian, and you want us to ignore questions of utility. How dare you, you heretic? Could you please defend yourself? So I'm I'm clear about saying that I think that short-term utility, a fixation on short-term utility tends to lead to ignoring or underemphasizing long-term, more abstract utility. And I, I think we all have examples of experiences in our life where we've seen tail wag the dog phenomena where uh, the, the the by focusing too much on a short-term gain or a short-term measure, you end up distorting the process of what you should be doing in the long term. So whether that's, I don't know, investing or whether that's thinking about your health or whether that is mm. a board report on on what an institution is doing. I think I think we all have experience with that. I think that's become dismayingly prevalent in 
uh, American education over the last couple of decades, and that the fixation on short-term measurements and high-stakes assessment has perverted a lot of classroom practice and made teaching and made studying a lot less happy and a lot less joyful for friends of mine who are teachers and and for people who have kids that have been in school during this transition. So I'm not against utility. Mm-hmm. I think the I think we have a shallow I think I think the way we have talked about education through the lens of assessment has led to a much a regrettably shallower sense of how we talk about what really is one of the most complex and wonderful human activities that we have. Okay. Uh, So let me push back against that a little bit because Mm -hmm. I have to, Um, it's compulsive, Uh, but a lot of our goals for assessment, our assessment began because it was clear that, um, well, a lot of American high school students can't read. Mm -hmm. And there was a need to find out, uh, who could and who couldn't and to uh, help or punish <laughs> uh, those schools who were basically letting students go through without teaching them how to read. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that seems to me very unobjectionable. Um, there's also the thing, and I know you've seen this, you've been doing, you've been in department meetings for, by my measure, about for three times as long as I was. Um, I've been in what? And I faculty senates for the same period. Right. Uh, department meetings and faculty senate meetings. And we know that one of the basic defensive gambits uh, at such, uh, when confronted with the idea that we might want to find out if something is effective, is to question the possibility of, of ever understanding it either quantitatively, but then often qualitatively as well. Well, this is just too precious to be measured. How can I, How can you measure love? Well, you can't. Um, but it's often a defensive move. You know, it's, uh, used to say at, at Oxford that the first, the first, uh, defense, the first move, uh, of defense is to say, we've always done things this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that many American schools, let's just focus on higher ed for, for, for our purposes. The first defensive move is to say, well, then this is just too important to be measured. Um, and that's a problem, uh, Right. I think I, I'm, I try to be clear that I'm all in favor of complex, nuanced, qualitative evaluation that is that. But but when you do that, whenever in whatever realm you do that kind of qualitative evaluation, it's labor intensive and it entails mm-hmm. judgment in a way that I think we don't often have patience for or time or funding for. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have a moment that I thought really crystallized this for me when I was at a board retreat maybe five years ago or so. And one day we had a panel session with a number of private school principals and counselors and curriculum designers. And to a T, all of them were saying, uh, we're reducing emphasis on grades. We're moving more towards qualitative, uh, if you want to use the word assessment, or qualitative evaluations of our students. We're going away from AP classes because we don't find them to, they're, they're fixating on the wrong things and they're not as intellectually stimulating as they ought to be. And they were, they were really emphasizing that where they were moving was away from uh, numerical evaluation towards more qualitative evaluation. But again, that's, that's time consuming and they have the resources to be able to do that. So we had that panel one day 
And then the very next day, we had a representative from the Gates Foundation, someone who had used to work in the DC public schools and was implicated in some of the cheating scandals with the testing um, schemes there, who was arguing for a numerical evaluation of poor public school students and uh, a very kind of hostile or a, a sense of teachers as being something that needed to, a problem that was in the way rather than a partner and and the contact, the person who was interacting with the students and the, the model of kind of firing the worst whatever percent every single year. I it was it, it was literally at that moment that I was in that meeting where my wife texted me a magnetic poem that my seven-year-old had created in frustration <laughs> of of her being in one of these schools where the the testing and the assessment anxiety was permeating every aspect of her education. And my daughter, my seven-year-old at the time, texted me this, or had created this magnetic poetry image saying, I hate school. And I, it just broke my heart to see that. And I couldn't, I couldn't help but feel outraged that the, the insistence on the numerical aggressive high stakes version of assessment was permeating the entire Memphis school system at that moment and not to the good. I don't, I don't think that there were, even if the goal is obviously not to pass students along that aren't able to read or aren't able to achieve the things that you want them to achieve, the, the methods of implementing this were, I don't think were productive. I think they were counterproductive. I think they, and they, they, they did not achieve the goal and they actually made things worse on the ground for almost everybody at, at every school that I was familiar yeah. with. So I, I appreciate the, I mean, we, uh, I, I appreciate the pushback. Um, I think, I, I think part of the issue is related to resources and how we are able to do those kinds of high level qualitative assessments um, that, that do take time and do take money and, um, and involve human judgment. But, I, whatever, all that I've seen from the push for high stakes ass- testing and assessment and teacher evaluation looks to me like it did not succeed. And it, mm-hmm. and it, it did not exceed, succeed at, at achieving the laudable goals of increasing literacy and inc- increasing numeracy. Yeah. You uh, write, um, this is in the chapter on ends, a few days later, my wife and I had a spirit crushing exchange when we asked our seven-year-old whether she had learned any new words that month. This otherwise vivacious child contemplated a moment, looked at us coldly, and whispered, "Assessment." Yeah, ouch. that's true. I mean, it was that it was awful. ouch. It was <laughs> it. Had, I mean, it was. I guess it was. That was a kind of moment that again was crystallizing for me, where I felt like things that I'd been thinking about with Shakespeare's education and things that I valued about that kind of pedagogy were. I was at the same time in parallel experiencing this frustration with the the way my daughter was experiencing her schooling at that moment. And she has had fantastic teachers. I also cite in that chapter, one of those teachers who mm-hmm. did her best to shield her students from it, but, but she was the one who ended up confiding to me that she thought this was cruelty to children the way this was someone who had been teaching for 30 plus years and was just an extraordinary teacher who was having time taken away from her good teaching to fixate on test preparation and uh, school-wide anxiety permeating the entire institution as a result of 
the the pressure from the school system to increase those numbers and and we know that that's led to cheating scandals nationwide um it's it's narrowed curricular focus it's led to a reduction in funding for arts programs and drama and you name it and even even science programs because everything has become fixated on passing literacy and math tests but we we actually know that you know one of the best ways in, in just like a good way to learn how to write in English is not to write in English, to write in a different language. A good way to learn how to read is to be a, in a language-rich environment where there's all kinds of things related to reading going on, but you're not fixated on uh, parsing skills or, or kind of abstract pedagogical skills. You're, you're actually kind of conveying the joy of reading and conveying the joy of math through modeling, through through excitement, through practices, through exercises. But you're, there's a kind of odd way in which you a lot of the pedagogy has fixated on the specifics and miss the miss the whole or miss the big picture there's a great essay by paul mm -hmm. lockhart called a mathematician's lament where he digs into this and he says we would we would never teach music this way where you would begin by doing abstract music theory with seven-year-olds and forcing them to memorize kind of strange terminology he said you with music you introduce students to the joy of music and the the mm -hmm. embodied qualities of music and and the participatory nature of music and eventually at the graduate level, then you do the theoretical stuff. But in some ways, it's almost like we've inverted that that yeah. pyramid well, in our in our We teaching. would teach music that way if we wanted them to pass a music test because we decided that the music test, yeah. passing the music test was the most important thing. Um, right. Which is how that to lay my cards on the table. That's what we're doing. That's, of course, what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the worst things that can happen to a school is have the AP test enter into it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know how you feel about the AP English test, but I've never discovered um, any benefit by taking AP US history test uh, in uh, in a rising uh, first year college student. I mean, I guess it says something nice about them, but it's I, I it doesn't really mean much to me about them. If they have written, a, a, it, it doesn't tell me about their ability to to write a sentence or a paragraph or a page. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell me about their interest in reading. And mm -hmm. you know, I've learned I've learned the one of the most important questions I could ask students in the first two weeks when I when I when they were talking to me in their office is, you know, do you read a lot, or how or are there books in your in your house? Do your parents read? That's a really mm -hmm. interesting heuristic question to find out about a person and their future college career. Yeah, John, I don't know if you know the work of John Warner at all, but he's written a great book called Why They Can't Write. And he he attacks the five paragraph essay in particular as something that the AP model has, you know, kind of without the consent of the teachers of the nation implemented mm. as the, the only way that we teach writing. And I, I was just telling my students yesterday, you know, they were often students get frustrated when I say, well, I don't want you to write a five paragraph essay. And then they say, you know, what do you want? Then like, do you want a six paragraph essay or four? You know, they're trying to find the other <laughs> formula when yeah. in fact, you know, part of part of becoming a more complex thinker and writer is to to recognize patterns and formulas, but also to find yeah. ways to move move beyond them. And the five paragraph formula, I told them it, I, it, it provides a kind of basement on your writing so that you're not horribly unorganized. At least there's some structure, but it's also a ceiling on your writing and, and it's hard to break through yeah. that ceiling once you've become fixated on that. It's the same stuff that Edward Tufte says about the kind of cognitive style of PowerPoint, like not everything yeah. in the world breaks down into five bullet points. And, yeah. and that, that's another tail wipe the dog situation. Add. 
Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm a little horrified sometimes to find out how few first year students don't know what a five paragraph paragraph essay is. Um, mm -hmm. And you're right. I, I, that's, I wish I had come up with that line. It is the basement and you don't want to stay in the basement forever. <laughs> it's a very bad mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. uh, I started experimenting when we doing exercises. We'll talk about this later about like trying to give them a different type of essay model uh, every class and ha and mm -hmm. try to find some way of like uh, so that they have lots of tools in their back pocket there are certain mm -hmm. times that all you need to use is a five paragraph essay just to get your thoughts in order um, mm -hmm. but there are other times you want to do something completely different and to give them different example exemplars of, of different essay styles and um, and structures is I think uh, a really helpful thing to do to break break them out of a five paragraph essay or to help them hopefully to so that they realize that it's just one uh, of many it's it's a basement of a, of a, of a building of many stories mm-hmm mm -hmm. No, and that as you're as you're alluding, that's that's is is one of the things that the humanist educational model did encourage was to, in effect, write in a variety of different genres or forms, and to be aware that you had all of these possible resources available. That there's not just one way to structure an argument, and there's in fact there's 14 different ways. There's there's a, a number of kind of steps or or passages or or practices that you could go through in order to think about ways of shaping your your writing. So yeah, I, I think that's true. The more you can show different models to them, the more the more they, I don't know, whatever metaphor you want to use, they have, the more tools mm. they have in their toolbox or the more options they have in their closet or whatever, whatever the model well, I, is. Well, tools and toolbox is good because we just stumbled into sort of the next topic, uh, next chapter mm -hmm. topic, which I wanted to touch on, which is craft. Um, and so thinking of writing an essay as a craft, think, uh, thinking of thinking as a craft, thinking of learning as a craft might seem strange. And yet I've always found it extraordinarily helpful. I, I, I have to admit, I've always thought of it that way to myself. Um, how did you come to think of it in that way? And, and why do you think that's important? I think that's interesting. I don't know when that moment first became clear to me. It, it, over, you know, I, I had been reading a lot of great scholarship from uh, about Shakespeare's era, about the practices of his theater, the collaborative practices of his theater, as as well as the educational practices of his schooling, and and I've I've enjoyed thinking through what that meant on the level of craft, and I think that you know I, when you say craft, I think it it risks sounding very precious, but it it, it does to me accurately describe the. The complexity of what we value in in almost any high level human endeavor, whether that is uh, an artistic practice or a, a, a practice in a in sports or other kinds of physical uh, activities or architecture, you know, you name whatever discipline you name. Uh, many people who work within that discipline describe what they do as a craft, and I think. I think that has a number of fascinating implications when you try to apply that to education as well. It gets a, I was looking for a vocabulary or a lexicon to get away from the skills assessment uh, mm -hmm. jargon that preoccupies our moment. And um, that the, the lexicon of craft, to, it feels accurate to me of, about my own intellectual development and about that of my children and that of my students and that of my peers. And, and people kind of revert to it almost uh, naturally in many cases because, because of its accuracy. So what, you know, what do we mean when we talk about craft, we talk about a community of 
practitioners that are mm -hmm. working in conjunction with each other. We talk about uh, an ongoing tradition of those practices that are within the craft. That doesn't mean that they're the only practices or that you, you can never change those practices, but, but they are kind of habituated and inherited and uh, handed on to subsequent generations. Uh, that community often entails people of different ages that are working with each other and modeling things. It, 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 it involves a complicated relationship to material and the potential for any material to be shaped in certain ways or pushing back against you in terms of its shape. And it's, it's something that is embodied and it takes time and it's not easily replicable in a textbook. So, you know, it's interesting, one of the, among the many genres that flourished in with the advent of print in the 15th, 16th century were craft handbooks or textbooks, but all, a lot of them are apologetic and they say, they preface themselves by saying things like, I know this is hard to do without someone working, working with you on it in person. And if you think about all the how-to books in the world, they, they often have some of that complicated uh, tension between embodied practice and, and theoretical the distillation of what the rules are for that particular practice. But that's a long way of saying, I think I, it, craft just seems accurate to me in terms of what I love about learning and thinking and what yeah. I, and I, I've seen many other people revert to that language as well. I, um, I think the most valuable lesson I got about this, and this is, we're going to, I guess, talk a lot about intro to writing class because that's what we have in common in terms of, <laughs> of teaching this. Um, but uh, I worked for one summer as a stringer for a local newspaper when that was a thing. And that I've only realized recently how much that taught me uh, about taking, using the skill of taking notes that I had learned as an undergraduate after, two, after a year or two uh, to be able to do that in a township meeting and do it really well. Mm -hmm. And so that, so that I was actually reproducing what people said um, so that they didn't complain to the editor of the newspaper. Uh, very important. And then also then driving in at 10 o'clock at night and filing my copy in a sort of on the, they had computers of a sort. I'm not going to bother to explain, but you had to put your copy on this thing. It had to be good and you uploaded it and then that was it. Uh, you had like till 11, the deadline, the ability to put stuff together and write with facility to a, a certain word limit. Um, it's mm -hmm. very crafty. And um, mm -hmm. it's wrong to see that as somehow apart from art. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very wrong to see that as apart from art because um, uh, Michelangelo uh, had a discipline as well like that. Uh, he could mm -hmm. he could he could do sculpture to spec, um, and that uh, to somehow separate the two, art and craft or thinking and craft, is I, I think it's it's a great mistake, especially that we might uh, fall into with with students. I think it is. And, and, you know, craft is easy to dismiss as, I mean, sometimes it's dismissed as, you know, being physical rather than cognitive. But in fact, if you know, if you look at anyone who does any physical craft related activity, it is immensely cognitive. I mean, it's saturated with uh, the kind of orchestration of both mind and hand and uh, body and temporal anticipation and all, yeah. all the wonderful things that we, that we cherish in, in any elaborated human activity, I think, I think fits that model of craft. A true, yeah. Someone, you know, watching someone build a dry stone wall here in Virginia, you realize the mm -hmm. person who can do that has no need for a Rubik's cube. Um, mm -hmm. Why mm -hmm. would they, they, they're doing something much more complex in its way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're putting together a wall that works uh, by looking at a rock and, and knowing what it looks like and what it what it is, and how it is it is like and unlike all the other rocks around it, and what will work and what won't. Um, it's rema- amazing cognitive um, dis- uh, power that's being exerted. Um, you quote my pal. Um, Matt Crawford uh, to that yes. degree, and he's very, very good on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has fantastic writing on that. Richard Sennett does. Yeah. Uh, even if you go back to Robert Persig and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a lot of what he's describing there is about that that complex, high level cognitive work of figuring out how something functions and being and being almost intimately, almost in an egoless way, in relationship to the object that you are shaping and then you know sometimes reciprocally has a mutually shaping force on you on your own on your own persona as you're as you're working on the object but yeah crawford is is fantastic on this and i i learned a lot from from his thinking through what what that kind of work entails you have a a, a, another a great quote from c wright mills that i wish i had known about before uh he suggested just suggesting that a craftsperson forms his own self as he works toward the perfection of his craft. That made a light go off in my head. Um, what does that say to you? Well, I mean that, you know, Mills is, that's, that's a mid 20th century sociological statement that I think accords with exactly what writers said in the 17th, 16th century. And I'm sure there are, we have medieval examples of it as much as uh, classical examples of that too, but it's that, that dynamic of of and again, I think if you if you think about when when you have worked on something, whether it's an essay or building a wall, and you you have intensively immersed yourself in it, and you have kind of fully deployed all of your capabilities to make this thing in the best way possible, that that has a, a wonderful kind of I don't know what downstream byproduct on on your own self because you know what it's like to do something well and to make something that is that is has quality to it and uh i think i think the more you can encourage students to do that and recognize that in their own work and the work that they're engaging with the writing that they're engaging with the more likely it is that it will become a kind of autonomous uh self confirming process rather than i have to do this worksheet to fill this in this stuff this kind of the weird abstraction that a lot of pedagogy ends up defaulting into, which mm-hmm. is doing a bunch of what amounts to busy work rather than thinking about the larger or more abstract goals of, of why you're doing it in the first place. How do you emphasize, or, or do you emphasize, and if so, how do you emphasize the idea of craft when you're when you're teaching? I guess a couple of different ways. One with One is just merely biographical when I'm trying to talk about how Shakespeare got to do what he did. I I walk through some of the 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 facts of his training and exactly what we're talking about here in terms of the classroom practice, as well as the the collaborative and dynamic nature of the theater. So that part of it is just being explicit about that, and I think that helps dethrone any any prejudices that they might have about Shakespeare's kind of the idealized eighteenth century. Bardolatry vision of Shakespeare is kind of self-made and and entirely independent of any uh, collaboration or social social infrastructure around him. Uh, you know, separately, I 
when I'm when I'm you know, for instance, teaching a survey of British literature, I kind of approach it as a something like more like a creative writing class than a than a conventional literary history class where we are reading touchstones across 800 years of writing, but I end up having the students imitate the the models that we're reading. So when we're reading a sonnet, they write a sonnet, or when we're reading Pope's couplets, they write a couplet, or when we're reading anonymous 18th century ballads, they write a ballad. And in some ways, it's, it is a little bit like the Crawford or the Persig instance of getting under the hood of the engine and figuring out how this thing works. So that, that I guess the overall, I'm trying to convey and, and emphasize that writers are makers and that the, there's a process to how they came to make the thing that they made and looking at these written objects, not as monuments or statues that are frozen in time, but actually much more living things that that took human effort and, and took a high level of practice skill in order to achieve them. And that they can see that in their own writing when they're, when they're doing some of those imitative practices. It, it seems to me, just to finish this up, that uh, one of the problems is the idea that uh, they have to wait for inspiration, um, yeah. which, which is inimical to being a craftsman. Um, if you're working on that, if Paul Revere is working on a silver bowl, uh, mm -hmm. For someone to talk about a great American craftsman, not known for his silver silver work, unless you go to the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, where there's some mm -hmm. nice stuff there that he did. Um, you know, he's got uh, he's got a deadline. Uh, he's got to have things done. He cannot wait to say for that perfect image in his head. He's got to start somewhere. And uh, I I don't think that uh, if you read the sort of the routine of any great 20th century writer, which I, I love to do, um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think any of them ever waited for inspiration. But my goodness, uh, I, I wish I had 10 bucks for every 19-year-old who shows up in a writing class who is waiting for inspiration. We, I teach from a great little book called How to Write by Alistair Fowler, who's an a, a incredibly learned and uh, Renaissance scholar. But he, he wrote a, a, general, uh, a general public book on how to write, which is he acknowledges that it's an audacious title. But one of the best pieces of advice that he gives there early in the book it's a chapter on beginnings, and he says the best way to begin is is not to, uh, is to is not to stare at the blank page and think of worry about inspiration or having an original idea, but in fact, kind of fooling yourself into beginning by copying out passages or jotting down ideas, and then suddenly after you do that for a little bit, oh, I've I look, I've written something I didn't even realize it, and I I can start to shape that and <laughs> and revise that and reformulate that. So kind of tricks to fool yourself into avoiding the. The fantasy that I have to have the perfect idea that comes to me from the outside, and instead forcing yourself to kind of habituate your your experience into writing something, even if it's not the best thing, and then finding ways to improve and and polish that. You have a chapter entitled "Fit." Um, that's F I T. In case you didn't understand how I pronounced that. Um, why did you, for, what is that? And why do you believe it to be important? So, you know, an overall goal of the book was to kind of smuggle in as much of the rhetorical tradition as I could, but in terms that were not off-putting to a non-specialist reader. So I, I, I worked very hard to avoid uh, terminology that I thought would be frustrating or opaque or unhelpful to someone who wasn't a Shakespeare scholar that was picking this up. So 
fit, you know, fit aligns with, it's one of the many translations that we have for the classical rhetorical idea of decorum. And, and, but I think fit is more apprehensible to us because uh, we, we recognize fit in everyday things like clothing or physical fitness or fitness for office. And uh, so it seems to me to be a, a helpful term that has an analog in the physical realm, again, clothing or bodies or shapes of objects that you're trying to fit together as a, as a kind of handhold for them thinking about, okay, what do we mean when we describe fit in the verbal realm or in the intellectual realm or in the social realm? Um, and, and it was an immense and ongoing preoccupation for rhetoricians was trying to think about what, what's the right thing to say at the right moment for the right, for this particular audience and this particular occasion. I mean, in some ways, once you describe it that way, almost everything is about fit to a greater or lesser extent, but it, it's a way to, um, again, try to translate a, a pretty abstract rhetorical concept into more accessible and familiar terms. So, you know, in the chapter, I do play around that particular chapter. I play around with the fact that Shakespeare's father was a glove maker and, and the, that someone growing up in that household would have learned some pretty fascinating stuff about fit on a, on a physical level, like how to make a glove that fits that particular customer or that particular patron, how to fit the fashion market, how to um, fit yourself to to what's going on in terms of the economy of this particular town. And I, I do think a lot of that probably inadvertently, again, not not with the plan, but translated into being subtly attentive to fit when he was crafting plays, what worked well with audiences, what worked well with this particular actor, what what kinds of characters would suit this particular actor that was in the company. That's that is all about fit in that in that larger abstract sense of of what the rhetoricians called decorum. You write, I've found that part to, the notion of part to whole, one of the most evasive yet most essential aspects of teaching reading. It's Again, there's no rule for identifying it, but you can feel it. Learning to think means picking up that feel, akin to a baker's awareness of the consistency of dough, a doctor's gentle pressure on the patient's body, a sailor's hand on the tiller. All of these touches are developed through emulation for fit. I love that. So much, so much of that. You're exactly right. It's trying to, uh, w- trying to teach that reading is to, fi- to 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 pick up that feeling of the meaning of, of the intent of the author, and it's so difficult, uh, impossible for me most of the time to put into words. Oh, it is. They just have to do. It's an, it's they just have to do difficult. it a lot. Yeah, you have to do it a lot, and you have to model it a lot, and it's a lot of it. I think is kind of ad hoc, you know, to the moment where you'll say, "Look at that. There's that thing that we were." describing, or do you see that? Do you recognize that, that why this seems to work so well, why this phrasing works so well at this moment? Or can you see why the sentence is confusing when you read it aloud? Um, it's, but it's, you know, the, I know you're a fan of Christopher Alexander as I am. And one of his early essays is describes how complex it is to describe good fit. And it, we, I, we do have a pretty quick recognition of what bad fit is when something doesn't work and it's not suited to its occasion. And, is not doesn't have this that sense of touches of the kind of tactile sense of of the doctor or the artist or the cook um but it's really it's really hard to describe uh describe the positive sense of fit and 
one you know one of yeah. the best ways is through through modeling it or giving examples or pointing it out along the way but um it's harder to generalize about it hey. yes there's a nice callback there by the way to baker's awareness doctor's gentle pressure to to craft and uh it it reminds me that in when you're speaking about how to do this that one of the best advice i got the, the that for technology in the classroom was that the greatest innovation is the document camera um, <laughs> yep. to be able to take an essay and to do a sort of a think aloud so that they see you thinking as you're reading their writing or mm -hmm. even better as you're editing your own writing, which is often very impressive to them that mm -hmm. I would use no, a red not... pen even more on me than on them. Um, mm -hmm. And that that's very helpful for to, to understand both fit and also craft. You're right. And I think if you, if you, if you think about the fact that we use the word practice for all kinds of professions, like I'm a practicing lawyer or a practicing doctor, that's, that is, it's partly acknowledging that dynamic. And if, if you look at legal and medical education in, in its best senses, it's often very hands-on in that way. And you have the physician that's modeling certain kinds of strategies and practices in person with with the the medical students around around them as they're as they're kind of working working through that and you're seeing you're like oh i get it that's how it's that's how it's done it looks i've memorized all this stuff that i need to know the factual stuff that i need to know but this is actually the the art or craft of of implementing it and it's a it's incredibly complicated and it's an incredibly high level um uh activity of human judgment that that has to be aware of all the complexities of any any circumstance that you're responding to but yeah, I agree. I think that's, you know, some of the technology, yeah. some of the, the basic technologies are actually often the best technologies because they're, they're not getting in the way of the thinking. They're actually providing a platform for it or yes. they're enabling it to happen. Yes. That's the Steve Jobs design philosophy. Um, that's, <laughs> that is why a document camera is, is good. It's, it, it basically, no, it gets out of the way. It enables you to do something that, you know, you know but that becomes very unobtrusive. Um, Let's talk briefly about place, which I like to talk about on, on the, mm -hmm. this podcast. Um, what's the applicability of place to thinking? Um, you say a shocking revelation that, that Shakespeare had cla a classroom that was in a place. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, why is that important? <sighs> I think we, uh, I, th I think our moment has a kind of fixation with the, the, imagined magic of placelessness. Um, and I, I just yeah. wanted in that chapter to remind us of some of the enduring, longstanding good qualities of grounding or maybe even anchoring yourself in a place and time. And I, I, I think this is, I think the, the earlier you are in your educational life, the more important this is. Uh, I I think as you become an adult and you're you're able to do interactions online, that it becomes slightly less important. But even so, you know, our the global pandemic moment that's forced all of us into a kind of weirdly placeless place with classes on Zoom or other other platforms. I think the pandemic, the the this emergency series of measures that we've had to take has actually revealed how important places. I mean, it's one of the things that students and teachers alike, I think most miss is just being in a room together and all the kind of complex unspoken things that can happen when you have human beings sitting around a table together. It's something that I think sounded again, banal a year ago, but 
right now, it's actually the thing that we're yearning for is, I mean, I'm certainly in my teaching, I'm yearning for all of the nonverbal signals and gestures that I absorb from a classroom that I, I just can't pick up on, on Zoom. I mean, I can see a Hollywood Square's grid of faces, but I can't, I can't get that same sense of, of the room. <laughs> of the of us together and like are people annoyed are they excited is is that student about to say something is that one uh wandering off and i need to try to pull their attention back to what we're doing um i i you know the you can do kind of data transfer stuff online i'm just having a really great difficulty doing the the marvelous place-based stuff that i that i really cherish about the give and take of the of the classroom so I'm, 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 much of the book ends up saying stuff that sounds kind of simple when you boil it down. But if you actually look at a lot of the lingo of um, ed tech advocates, you you realize like, actually, the simple stuff is pretty radical because there are people that would love to get rid of schools, physical schools, and and have this fantasy of everything would be perfect if we could be online all the time. And it's it's not perfect. Uh, none of none of what's going on now is perfect. And it and the ed tech response is always, well, the next version will be better, or this is just wait, you know, you have, or you haven't implemented it right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what your, what your experience has been in this, in this moment. Well, I haven't had to teach during this moment, but I, mm-hmm. um, I'm not surprised by anything that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of what I thought would happen. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for one thing, uh, one of the things you see in in using this remote learning is that what um, it's possible with six or seven students to do something resembling a seminar. It's mm-hmm. possible. Um, it takes skill, like any other seminar. Um, it's not, and there are certain uh, because of the time lag that even you and I are experiencing right now, and a really good connection. Um, it's mm-hmm. difficult to have that seminar experience. Um, but what's interesting is that students often don't like that, especially professional students. The majority of students who take classes are not between the ages of 18 and 22. Um, they're a little older than that. Um, and they're working some other job. That's the majority of American college students. And they don't like that live stuff. Uh, they want asynchronous video classes and, you know, um, that's, um, that's third best. Um, there's a real advantage to being, well, there's a tremendous cognitive advantage to being in the same place, teacher and student together. Let's just put it in mm-hmm. those terms. Um, there's that very old romantic phrase. I've, I've tried to track it down. Um, sometimes it's attributed to James A. Garfield uh, as the most famous alumni of Williams College. But the line is, is that Williams College or Williams College class is anywhere where there's a, a log with a student on one end and Mark Hopkins on the other. Mark Hopkins mm-hmm. is apparently a legendary teacher there. Um, that's a beautiful comment in terms of place, the consecration of place to thinking. I love it because also it's a log. It's, they have to look in each other's eyes. Mm-hmm. They have to look at each other. They have to establish a certain connection. Um, and then all of a sudden that log becomes a tutorial space, becomes a classroom. Um, that is, maybe that will be a possible with the iCortex um, when we are like linked to each other mentally, but that's <laughs> so horrible. I can't even begin to think about that. Maybe, my, you know, maybe our grandchildren can deal with that. Um, but until then, place has a real advantage. And uh, one of the things that I, worry about when I'm worrying about these things is the way to which as we necessarily 
it, there is, you know, there could be a billion people around the world, probably more that need to go to college. Um, right now, the only way I can imagine doing that on to scale is online. Mm -hmm. There might be other ways, but we're not really very good. As if we've talked on the on this podcast in the past, we're very we're this is an unusually bad moment in American higher education for coming up with new bricks and mortar models. Every other twenty years have been new models of American higher education, except for the last twenty to forty years. Um, it so how do you get all those people in, in, in college? Well, you do it online, but. I think that you're right. I think that place is a, is a killer app. <laughs> it's an inherent advantage to be educated by two people, by in in together with other people in the same place. So what we're describing then is a global stratification of educational outcomes mm -hmm. uh, based upon who is able to be in what the computer programmers like to call meat space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that old William Gibson. But what we call place. Place. Yeah. Yep. No, and I think no, bridge, yeah. no, you're right though. It's, it is a stratification and it, it regrettably, you know, reinforces existing uh, inequities in distribution of resources. So th that, you know, having one tutor and one student is incredibly costly. It's not, it's not inexpensive and it doesn't scale up in the way that having 500,000 people watch a video can scale up. Um, but I, you know, I, I guess it just seems to me that if, if, if education is only information transfer, then teachers would have been put out of work long ago by textbooks. So there's, there's something else that's missing mm -hmm. in, in that experience that is not just, I'm handing you a chemistry textbook, go read it. And now you know chemistry, there's, you're, you're lacking all kinds of things. You're lacking motivation. You're lacking the ability to prod or the ability to shame someone or inspire them or all the, all the complex things that happen in that teacher student interaction that are, I, I've been just finding it difficult to reproduce that online in the same way that I I've worked really hard to make it yeah. uh, vibrant in person we, in a place. We yeah, we should take a hint from the idea, the fact that, you know, there's only like one student per year in a college who there's one or two geniuses who are able to like get A's by in chemistry or their Calc 3 class by never going to a lecture and just reading the textbook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. It doesn't, what I'm saying is that we know that those are usually legendary when they happen when you're an undergraduate, you know, you know, that guy, that girl who's able to do that. It doesn't happen that often. What does that, that should say something to us about place and about learning and teaching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. So let's, let's, uh, well, we could go on forever about place. Cause I, as I say, I'm so silly interested in about that, but um, maybe we can get that to the end. Uh, let's go through imitation exercises um, briskly. Um, those are two things. Uh, I, you were a college a high school athlete. Uh, I was not. I often now wish the more I've tried to teach historical thinking and the way more I tried to teach writing, I kept finding myself coming back to athletics. Um, mm -hmm. And I began to realize, oh, yeah, this is why Plato and Aristotle always connected the gymnasium with the classroom. Um, the gymnasium and the academe, they're, they're, they're united. And the lyceum, they're united. Um, and I think that this applies to both imitation exercises. Could you could you speak to that, what you've sort of thought about those two things and, and how they're related to thinking and, and to athletics? Sure. The, you know, the term that we get from Aristotle is 
habitus or it gives us habit that that sense of human activity being habituated over time through emulative and and modeling processes so that you know aristotle ends up saying that imitation is something that's it seems to be almost innate in us as we know from you know childhood development studies about the way a child will stick its tongue out at you when you stick its tongue out at a newborn um so you know based given that we are we have a kind of tendency to mimicry that that clearly is something that suffuses all social relations in in complex ways and when you're trying to do something uh sophisticated like throw a basketball through a hoop or write a good sentence or paint a painting one of the old-fashioned but still effective ways to learn how to do that is by imitating someone who does that well. And we have countless examples of writers and musicians and artists and baseball players who say, I I started by trying to imitate her as best as I could. And eventually Mm -hmm. after I imitated all of these models, I I found my own voice. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it actually turns out to be one of those true cliches, which is that you, one way to find your own voice is by imitating the voices of others Uh, in a a way that's not, not, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think of the way that you know, we all were watching baseball. We tried to imitate someone's swing. You mm-hmm. know, I wanted to hit home runs, so I imitated Greg Lusinski's swing. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be cool. I was, I did the Joe Morgan sort of elbow flap like a chicken. That wasn't so great, <laughs> but I, but it, but uh, no, I mean, I, but I was picking up on what he was doing. I was watching intently and trying to to imitate that, and I think that's so natural. And 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 then I went and forgot that for years until I started to try to teach writing again via imitation. And I think again, if you if you, you you can often see this, you can recognize this in in the career of a of a poet. I mean, it's, sometimes it feels very overt in a poet where oh, she's going through a Yeats stage early on, or she's now she's trying to sound like Auden, or now she's trying to sound like Gwendolyn Brooks, and then eventually, wow, she sounds like her. Like she, she sounds like that's that's her style that and people end up imitating. But it it's. I think that's a good thing and that's a that's a healthy developmental process and I it it's a in in an interesting way it's it's a way towards creativity through something that looks very uncreative and it, it's also a way towards autonomy in a way that looks not terribly autonomous uh but I again I think we we're willing to see this in the physical realm whether it's sports or dance or music and I I I think it's true in the in the written realm and and realms of argument and realms of realms of thinking that that part of the way we come to be come to know who we are and and articulate ourselves as best as we can is through modeling ourselves after after others who do that activity well yeah i i would i would worry about someone as a reader if uh they didn't say if they were doing some you know, morning pages, some sort of journal, just journaling, something to to write their to write their thirty to sixty minutes a day, and they just been say reading Huckleberry Finn or um, Mark Twain, any kind of Mark Twain or, or Tom Wolfe. If their voice wasn't somehow affected by that, two very powerful voices, you might not want to mm-hmm. have a final draft like that, but you certainly should be influenced by that. That you would think that when we when we read something a, a powerful prose voice. We want to pick up on that. I think so. And I, I, if you, again, going back to some of the tutor pedagogy, one of the goals was 
not to write that you sounded just like Cicero all the time, but if you could sound like Cicero and you could write like Ovid and you could write like all of these figures, eventually you you gain a, a remarkable fluency because you're able to write like a lot of people and and to to have a kind of mastery of your own voice and your own style. So I think, you know, this this even played out on the level of recitation where a figure like Richard Mulcaster would recommend that, you know, try to try to say the speech in a quiet, hesitant voice and then do it in a loud speaking voice. And then eventually by by trying all the permutations on the way you could deliver the speech, you're you're able to, in a more subtle mm -hmm. manner, find ways to oscillate between different different ranges and and find your your kind of true center in the process of stretching yourself to those those extremes. I bring up, you know, one of the analogs I bring up in the book is my college track coach who would have us do something he called plyometrics. I'm sure that this is a thing that people do all over the place. I bring it up with my students and they always say, yeah, we do plyometrics in football practice. But yeah. basically it's, it's like running in every way except for the normal way of running. So mm -hmm. running, running backwards for 50 yards, skipping scissored sidestep for 50 yards. And obviously you're not going to run a 50 yard dash backwards and expect to win, but you're, you're working different muscle groups. So that way, when you come back to running in your straightforward fashion, you're that much better. I mean, it's just like cross training, all the cliches that we know about cross training benefiting you because you're, you're doing things that are stretching you beyond your, your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, why are copy sheets or not exercises? I mean, I had lots of, I'm, I'm so old that I can still remember the smell of ditto ink and, and what it does to your finger and how you can get it on your fingers. Mimeographing. Yeah. Mimeographing. mimeographing I remember yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can get that ink on your fingers too, um, when you come back from lunch. Um, but why are those sorts of, those work, why are worksheets not exercises? I mean, they can, oh, I mean, they, they can be, they I think I would make that distinction. <laughs> Ideally, they could be. With that end in mind, I think I think unfortunately that they they have a tendency to lapse into becoming an end in themselves to fulfill the, the worksheet rather than these are these are exercises in in variety and facility to make you a, a better writer or mathematician or or thinker. So, um, but it, it's it's the design matters. I guess is where I would that's that's the way I would make the distinction there. Yeah, but you you you, um, you speak about in the exercises the the pro gym oh, pro gymnastmata, uh, the fourteen steps of fable narrative saying maxim refuge. What 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 is this? What is the pro gymnastmata? Can you explain that? So this was just a, a rhetorical practice that was developed uh, already by the Romans and instituted for you know over a thousand years after that, where you would go through for this is you would go through 14 different genres of writing or 14 different forms of writing. And that's another way to stretch your voice by writing something like a fable or writing something like a legal argument. Or one of the most fascinating ones was uh, ethopoeia or the, the writing in the voice of someone else. Uh, yeah. This, this it's it, again, it turns out not by plan, but it turns out inadvertently to be great training to be a dramatist that if you know how to write like, an abandoned uh, figure in classical literature, you actually can write an abandoned figure pretty well on on stage. Or if you think through different uh, moments in time that you're writing about, you're writing about people from different eras, different nations, different genders. Uh, you're 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 stretching yourself to imagine yourself in different different subject positions. 
That's a beautiful but example I, I, of, of literary plyometrics. It is plyometrics. It it it, it, it definitely sure. is. Even if even if you don't ultimately write in that way, you've stretched yourself and and ideally when you come home to yourself, you're that much stronger for it. Have you have you ever done that in class? I mean, gone through all 14? Have you tried that? No, not in that same way. But I I do, as I mentioned in that literature survey, what, what they do for that class is they choose a favorite prose passage. So you know, it's a Toni Morrison novel that they love and they pull a paragraph and that's their source paragraph for their whole semester. And they translate that paragraph into Beowulf ease, into Chaucerian verse, into Spenserian style, into the ballad form. And that in effect, they are doing a kind of version of, of the Prokimnasmada's stages of writing the same thing in different, different ways. It's a, it's a hmm. version of that dynamic of copia the rhetorical dynamic of writing the same stuff in different ways in order to help you recognize the full, uh, full range of possibilities for your, for your language. You and I are both fans of Greg Roper's writer's workshop. And of course he, he has us do that too. Um, he has, uh, I, I, I really swear, I swear that I did not read that book before I wrote my book. It was, <laughs> it was one of those cases where I had to apologize to him because I was doing a lot of the same stuff and, and using some of the same strategies. And I, I, it, it, they were things that I, I swear I developed on my own, but I'm glad that I'm glad that we're on the same page there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to give everyone an example that, that you use, like say a, a phrase, he has a, a interesting reading. It's a really great Hemingway short story. Uh, which we then you then have to transfer into a story about what happened with you and your roommate, um, or and so on. Uh, it goes on from mm-hmm. there, and then you you tr- you try these things on in different prose styles. Uh, same topic. It could be a, a fight that you and your roommate had, um, and then you keep on developing in different ways, and and so that you, you're turning it around and around in your hand and looking at it from different angles. Same event. Same set of circumstances, but then you're always using a different style to describe it. It's really great. I love it. And I think it, I, I, I'm always pleased by, you know, that the class that I teach actually does not have many English majors in it. It's more of a general education, a general education class. And I'm, I'm always so pleased by students who, who they think that they would never enjoy doing this. And they come away at the end of the semester saying, wow, I feel like I, I've, I've never written a poem before and now I've done it and I've it, it kind of taken away the anxiety about originality uh, that the, because they they already have the topic that they've chosen from that, that fictional paragraph and they don't have to worry about that. They're just thinking about form and they're stretching themselves to think their way into the form again, kind of the, like the model of looking under the, the hood of the engine and figuring out how this thing works. It, it really gives them a kind of participatory nature uh, sorry, a participatory relationship to the writing that they're reading rather mm-hmm. than this thing is external to me and it's done and it's it's frozen in time as opposed to like, wow, a sonnet does weird things in 14 lines. There's some things you can do and some things you can't do. And that, that helps them become better readers because they've become better writers. Let's um, finish with not your last chapter, but it's an appropriate place for us to, to end our conversation is to talk about conversation. Um, I... Listeners have heard me uh, quote the German Catholic philosopher Josef Pieper before, who says that the the natural habitat of truth is conversation, which I used to think was kind of sweet and fluffy and sunshine and kittens and little lambs gambling across fields. But actually, I'm beginning to think is now actually a hard, bright truth. 
like a diamond, um, that there's something really profound in that. And it's, uh, and it's a kind of a hard truth as well, partly because we don't have a lot of conversations these days. Um, we might have arguments, we might have debates, but as Zena Hitz has shown us, um, debates are not conversations, not the way we have them. Um, what's the connection for you uh, between conversation and, uh, and thinking and learning? Well, I mean, on a, on a basic pedagogical level, a lot of the exercises that were done in a, a classroom like Shakespeare's were directed towards conversation. Maybe you were reading a dialogue in a, a language uh, textbook, and part of the way that the, the writer decided to animate that textbook was by placing it in dialogic form. So in some senses, the, the pedagogy was suffused with dialogue and suffused with dialectical interactive practices, even on the level of something that Erasmus recommended, which was to, to make an argument and then flip 180 degrees and make the counter argument against the argument that you just made. So obviously the downside of that is exactly what Socrates hated about the rhetoricians and identified early in the dynamic of saying, well, you'll argue, you'll argue like a lawyer, you'll argue for anything. Whoever pays you the most money, you're willing to argue that side. So it's lacking a kind of ethical core or a guiding principle about coming to an ultimate truth, or at least a better, a better version of a, a, a more refined truth, if even if it's not the ultimate truth. But that that model did suffuse that kind of classroom. And again, it it leads indirectly to great drama because in some ways drama is something akin to an elaborated Socratic dialogue where you, you are teasing out a series of challenges and tensions and problems and people stake out positions and they, they're forced to clarify them in, in relationship to each other over time. And ultimately, I think a good reader and writer and thinker internalizes the complexity of, of seeing more than one side of a position and and trying to come up with more subtle and more accurate ways to 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 describe what they care about and and why why what they care about is meaningful in the world. So, um, you know, again, on the on a on a basic level, you you can you can point to all kinds of examples of conversation suffused practices in that classroom that I think led to very sophisticated thinkers that emerge from um, from humanist pedagogy. It's um, and yet the the hardest, the impossible thing for any professor or teacher is to say to students, "Go have some good conversations after class." <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that's actually uh, that's the thing I would desire more for students than anything else. I, I think, I, yeah, I think it's right. And I, I used to always yearn to find out that they were actually talking about something maybe related to class outside class and mm -hmm. felt like such an idiot or sap for thinking that they would. I mean, the real, the true cynic would say, ah, oh, they're not going to talk about such things. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, we used to. I mean, okay, maybe we're the kind of people that then become professors, but not everyone I was talking about these things with, you know, we didn't all become professors. Um, uh, it's it's something I, I think that in, in getting back to earlier conversations this year, Carliani, it's I think what dormitories are ought to be designed to do is to somehow, but it, it's at the same time the thing that cannot be programmed, it cannot be, 
it can be, cannot be planned and it cannot be mandated. But having such conversations between students and be, hell, it's even harder to have conversations between professors these days. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, maybe even for you, despite your enormously long list of names in the back of the book. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, it's that thing which I would desire more than anything else. And yet with the knowledge that that is something that I, I'm not in charge of. It is, you know, again, one modest way to encourage it is to model it through, you know, I've always enjoyed having colleagues visit class. And I think students love to see adults in conversation with each other. It looks, it, it's like the real thing, right? It looks like we're kind of yeah. exposing um, no, it's the, how this, how this works. The, the undergraduate class that I remember more than anything else, and I took it for this reason, was it was team taught. And it was, you know, visions mm-hmm. of the self with Professor Robert Forrester and Professor Robert Kagan and, uh, uh, and Professor Kagan. Um, and it was magnificent. Um, for one thing, if you uh, didn't do the reading, you could always like throw some rhetorical hand grenade in the middle of the table and then <laughs> they would both they would both run for it um to, you know you know fight over the pin but um yeah but it was just wonderful to see them thinking aloud at each other and going back and forth and that mm-hmm. that model was it was an, it was an apprenticeship an intellectual history mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i and one of my great regrets is i never i never was i've, I've tried in the past but the deans always say well that's too expensive we can't we can't uh, we can't have both both of you in the same class. It is uh, costly. Just, I mean, a lot, almost everything that, yep, almost everything that we value about education is is costly on on many yeah. levels. It's costly in terms of time and and all kinds of resources. So it's and it doesn't it suffers from all that. What's the economic term about Baumol's Baumol's cost disease? Which is <laughs> you can you you can increase productivity of all kinds of. Uh, things, but you can't increase the productivity of a string quartet because it's always going to need four people, and yeah. uh, it's and that one-on-one log relationship is that, that doesn't scale in the same way that we can scale uh, manufacturing objects. Um, let's conclude by going back to utility again. Um, I didn't ask you this uh, before, but you know, when you do you ever say to your entering students in that in that class um you know, i was teaching a sort of the what we was called fyi first year introduction class and so i would give them a little five minutes about what's the use of college um or i, I don't think i actually called it that but i was trying to get at the utility argument which i knew that many of them were haunted by i know and goodness knows i knew their parents were haunted by it uh given how much they were paying um do you ever address that with students? Why are you here? That kind of thing. That that doesn't that doesn't really suit my teacherly personality. I guess I tend to be someone that kind of works. Uh, I'm a truffle hunter in terms of like working <laughs> from the ground ground up on details rather than the parachutist of of the big picture. So I, I'm not uh, I I've never been that comfortable with that that mode of kind of speaking. Uh, from the podium, and I, I uh. hope that what I'm doing instead is, is modeling and excitement and 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 kind of the thrill of discovery and the life of the mind. I think I, I hope that that is if that is effective in its own way. I, I feel like they get, and maybe again, maybe this is I don't know if this is being cynical or not, but I feel like they get told that a lot by. There, there are they're already kind of getting a lot of that messaging from the administrators and the institutional the people who run larger institutions 
Um, I, I don't feel like it's, it doesn't, it doesn't suit my personality as a teacher to do that from the classroom. And instead, I think what I end up trying to do is, is convey that in action and, and give them mm -hmm. models for at least how it works for me, even if they're not going to think like me, obviously, uh, but they can see, they can see somebody who enjoys doing what they do, even if it, if they never will end up doing that same thing again. So that's what you're conveying is by action is that the, the usefulness of this is simple enjoyment. I don't think it's simple enjoyment. I think it's com <laughs> complex, complex enjoyment. <laughs> enjoyment. And I think, you know, I think, I think being on, on a, on a basic level, being a better writer uh, will allow them to do better in whatever they want to do at any point in their life, uh, whether they are a doctor or a lawyer or a small business owner or a, a, someone who raises a family um, if they're becoming a better reader and a better writer, that those are in some ways very modest goals, but actually pretty radical <laughs> in terms of uh, lifelong, you know, democratic participation and human flourishing. So I, I, I don't tend to, I, I again, I kind of work from the ground up, and I don't have exalted goals that I state in that way. But I do. I would like to think that students that leave my class as a better writer are, are, are doing greater good in the world in the long run. My guest today has been Scott Neustock. He's the author of How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. I don't usually gush over a book uh, after, especially because I, you know, obviously I'm talking to everybody on this podcast because I like their book and I th think their ideas right. are important, but uh, you can't go wrong by being, buying Xena Hits and Scott Neustock and like holding one in, in the left hand and one in the right hand and reading them, you know, go, go back <laughs> and forth between the two of them. It's very helpful to do that. Um, they're the two best defenses um, that are out on favor of thinking and learning as a human activity and the inherent beauty of both and, and, uh, and of being human by doing them. Scott, thanks so much for writing this book. My father wrote a book a couple, wrote, read a book a couple weeks before he died and said, well, I'm glad that he did it so that none of us have to. And I'm very <laughs> glad that you wrote this because I couldn't have done it, but I really wish I really wanted this book to exist. <laughs> well, that's, that's beautiful. That's high praise. Thank you, Al. I really appreciate that. Historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.